Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an OSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. The legal aid community has always sort of been at the forefront of pushing what technology can do. And part of that is because it's it's driven by necessity. We can't live in the way that the regular for-profit legal world lives because we have problems to solve in the immediate now. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Tache, a member of the Emerging Leaders Council at the Legal Services Corporation and editor of the Justice Tech Download newsletter. In this episode, we'll be discussing how technology can help expand pro bono legal services, especially as the pandemic has caused soaring demand for legal assistance. To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Jane Ribadonera is the program analyst for technology at the Legal Services Corporation. Kristen Sande is the Chief of Operations at Paladin, a platform connecting lawyers with pro bono clients. And Dorna Mowini is the founder and CEO of Document, a document automation platform. Like myself, both Kristen and Dorna are also Emerging Leaders Council members at LSC. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Jane, I wanted to start with you and start broadly. Are people in the U.S. getting the civil legal services they need? And if not, in what ways are we falling short? We, a few years ago, the Legal Services Corporation uh, funded a study called, uh, and we released a report called the Justice Gap. Uh, in this report, we did a comprehensive study across our organizations um, and found that 86% of civil legal problems reported by low-income Americans received inadequate or no legal help whatsoever. And we also found that over 70% of low-income households experience at least one civil legal problem in a, in a year. You know, some of the reasons for this uh, that were identified uh, were things like low-income Americans um, just don't even necessarily identify a problem as a legal issue uh, is one of the things that, that we learned in this report. Um, we also saw that uh, um, they only seek help for 20% of the civil legal problems they may face. So, you know, the, the, the quick answer is, you know, really no. Um, legal, legal services uh, is, is uh, not being uh, adequately met across this country, um, given, given the, uh, um, the overwhelming need. Uh, and certainly with the pandemic, uh, we've just seen an incoming uh, flood of additional legal, legal problems. Um, so this report was done about three years ago. Um, so it doesn't, does not uh, adjust for the overwhelming additional need due to the pandemic. It's probably also worth noting that three years ago, the United States was going through the longest economic expansion of its history and the situation was still not good. So certainly now, we can only imagine those numbers to be significantly worse. Um, Kristen, there's a lot of ways that this access to justice gap that Jane is talking about is being dealt with. And one of those ways is pro bono legal help where attorneys volunteer their time uh, to help clients who would otherwise not have access to legal assistance. And now, as Jane was saying, um, a lot of the focus for this population when we talk about the access to justice gap tends to be discussion about indigent people, people of lower economic means. 
however, re you recently wrote about data indicating that more nonprofits and entrepreneurs uh, were also seeking out pro bono help. So can you help us understand who exactly is in need of pro bono legal help and why? Sure, yeah, so just to give a little bit of background on Paladin, kind of the data that I collected. So our mission is to increase access to justice by helping legal teams run more efficient pro bono programs, as you alluded to. So we work with a number of law firms and in-house counsel team to help them connect with their attorneys with local legal services organizations to help people in need. So we looked at some data regarding pro bono work from the first half of this year compared to data from this time last year. And to your point, found that about 30% um, of pro bono recipients were nonprofits and low income entrepreneurs. Now, the justice gap typically affects um, folks from uh, minority backgrounds, women and immigrants in particular. Um, but to your point, you know, we've seen a shift towards um, nonprofits and entrepreneurs in particular as we've seen um, the economic consequences of COVID 19. So as we see funding sources and revenue dry up and we've seen the government implement a number of programs to help um, protect jobs, we saw a huge shift in need and resources being allocated to help people um, claim these different program benefits. So about 30% of pro bono recipients this year were nonprofits and entrepreneurs compared to about 23% in 2019. That has since decreased a little bit as these programs have sunsetted, um, but we did see a big shift there. And of course, there are other related pro bono consequences around um, economic um, incidents related to COVID, such as unemployment benefits and um, other things like that, um, that we're seeing spike around the economic consequences. And is that true for the, the entrepreneurs you're seeing as well? Um, what are the issues that you um, are finding are um, now becoming more common, at least within these last few months? Yeah, sure. So of course, they help. They have to navigate issues related to these government programs, having to deal with um, contracts that they may be stuck in, um, that they're unable to get out of because of uh, the way that COVID has shifted events and workforce operations. They're having to deal with employees who have been laid off or potentially furloughed. And Black and Latinx communities in particular have been the hardest hit, and we've seen that translate on the business side as well. I want you to dig into that maybe just a little bit before I uh, bring Dorna into the conversation. But you know, at the moment, the country is seeing racial and ethnic disparities and everything from access to medical care to policing to eviction. Um, and you're indicating that this is no different in regards to um, what you're seeing in your pro bono data. Um, why are these communities in greater need now uh, than, say, their white counterparts? Sure. So we're seeing a lot of Black and Latinx folks who are really on the front line of the pandemic. So, um, you know, they're working in environments that are particularly susceptible to being affected. They're working um, in, um, you know, bars and restaurants. They're working on the front line in healthcare. Um, in these small businesses, in communities that are being hard hit as well. And so they're dealing with issues, not just around employment, but um, also related incidents of increased um, COVID cases. So health issues, family related issues is a second and third order consequence, um, and also housing as they lose their economic stability. So uh, there are a lot of consequences that are um, 
surrounding these communities that um, start with you know their places of employment and are greatly affected by the effects of COVID um, as they kind of splinter out from those locations. So then listening to what Jane and Kristen have to say, clearly the problem is vast um, and it's affecting different communities harder than others around the country. And pro bono to help alleviate some of these problems is being tackled in a number of different ways. Jorna, I was hoping that you could first introduce us to this concept of what no-code tools are and then uh, tell us how they can help bridge this gap that both Kristen and Jane have lined out for us. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Um, so just first to give a little bit of background on what no-code tools are, um, there are other ways that we can serve some of the people who need legal services in, in this country, including through guided interviews. Um, the most common analogy I use is the TurboTax model, where you ask people a series of questions that take them down a, a set of different paths, depending on their answers, and then generate documents for them. So these historically have been um, much more difficult to set up or have required technical expertise. So what no-code tools do is they allow lawyers on the ground, so maybe some of these same pro bono lawyers or lawyers who are working at legal aid organizations to take the expertise that's in their brains and build platforms without needing to know how to code. Um, and the way that that applies to, to the current to, to the current crisis, you know, as, as Jane mentioned there, in terms of the statistics, there is a huge unmet need um, in terms of legal services in, in this country. And while pro bono lawyers are greatly needed and definitely part of the solution, we're never gonna have enough pro bono lawyers to serve that entire population. Um, and if those people don't get pro bono, pro bono legal aid, their alternative would be to go to a regular lawyer, which most of these people can't afford. Um, the average person in the US makes about $25 an hour, you know, minimum wage is much lower than that. The average lawyer in America is $350 an hour, but 40% of people in this country don't have enough savings to pay even a $400 emergency bill. So um, we think that tech is part of that solution. We have, uh, and, and specifically building guided interviews to either guide uh, self-represented litigants or to expedite and scale the work of pro bono lawyers and legal aid lawyers. Um, so that's what some of these no-code no tools are able to do is, is allow that expertise to be automated. Jane, I have a similar question for you. What is the Legal Services Corporation working on right now uh, when it comes to the pro bono uh, world? So we have a couple of different special programs uh, that we have funding for. I work with our technology initiative grant program. And then we also have a, a very similar uh, fund called our, our pro bono innovation fund. Uh, both of these uh, we have uh, allocated um, about four to $5 million a year for both programs uh, to fund, uh, special initiatives. Um, you know, it's, it's across the board for legal services, but a number of these programs have, um, addressed the need to, how do you expand pro bono, uh, both using technology, you know, as well as, uh, additional staffing. Um, you know, as, as Dorna said, you know, the technology is, you know, one aspect of being able to help improve the efficiency of delivering some of these services. 
we, we also have to remember you know, some of the things we've learned is um, that the pro bono attorneys, you know, often need training uh, for in order to take on these cases, even when there's uh, maybe an automated form or document that they can help the client with. Uh, it may be an area of law they don't regularly do in their everyday practice. Uh, so one of the things we've been funding to build is to provide, uh, you know, the, the training that the pro bono attorneys might need. So online classrooms, um, you know, we've, there's a, a project that was built called Learn the Law. Uh, South Carolina and Connecticut legal services have built uh, kind of modular classrooms for the pro bono attorneys uh, to go through and, and uh, you know, get familiar with uh, maybe doing a guardianship or you know, child support um, uh, modification for, for a client. And that way, when a clinic opportunity does come up, they feel comfortable going in and, and taking on those cases. Um, there's also a, a project that, that was funded in Massachusetts that um, helped improve uh, the ability to find the cases um, as well as, as find the resources for the pro bono attorneys. It kind of provides checklists for them. So even if they've gone to a training and then they have the case, they can refer back to uh, the materials very quickly. Um, they are now also doing some modular uh, uh, online classrooms that have been built out by some professional online um, education organizations. Uh, and, and that's uh, in an area of great need right now with around eviction defense. Um, so, so those are some of the opportunities and, and projects uh, that we've seen uh, are really needed and, and help kind of merge both the technology as long with, along with the uh, identification uh, of the pro bono volunteers and helping the volunteers feel comfortable. And so Jane, your point on this need for training, you know, the, the attorney that does major business deals during the day might not know how to handle an eviction case uh, when they come and volunteer their time. And, and so obviously this is like the first hurdle, but after you go through the training, Kristen, I'm curious to this, is that some of the data that you had indicated that when the pandemic started and the quarantine started, you saw more people volunteering their time for pro bono. And then that number has begun to drop off more recently. So after this investment into training a pro bono attorney happens, whether it's in person or online, like what are the efforts that can be made to retain these people, to make sure that they keep coming back, that they're, they're frequent flyers in the uh, pro bono system? Sure. So I think something that was really exciting for the pro bono community is that, you know, not only did we see an increase in pro bono, pro bono engagement overall, but we saw a number of folks take on pro bono for the first time. And that was encouraging because um, as a pro bono counsel once told me, no one does pro bono just once. So I think there is, um, you know, a deep sense of, of interest and willingness and enthusiasm in giving back to one's community, especially during such a difficult time. So even though I think we did see a peak in pro bono in around April when um, folks were getting into a, more of a, a remote cadence and undergoing these trainings and taking on their first cases, things did die down a little bit. Um, but I think the, the consequences of COVID are, are going to be 
long-term, right? And I think that legal needs are going to come in waves. So we saw a huge surge in that work for nonprofits and entrepreneurs towards the beginning. We are about to see a huge surge in housing issues as um, protection sunset in the coming weeks and months. Uh, we're seeing unemployment benefits um, you know, expiring and hopefully there will be some um, new relief introduced, but we'll see you know, folks affected long-term because of those types of issues. So hopefully as folks get a training or two under their belt and they become more comfortable with the pro bono work that they're taking on, um, their law firms will continue to support and augment their work. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to be a marathon here and not a sprint. So I think the more that we can come together and support each other and um, provide resources to help uh, pro bono attorneys you know, take on and succeed in their cases, uh, the more tailwind we'll have moving forward. And Jane, I wonder if you want to um, build on that at all. Is there anything that LSC is finding in regards to retaining pro bono counsel and making sure people come back? Sure. It, it, still, it, takes, um, it still takes a, a personal connection with the pro bono attorneys. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why uh, our programs have pro bono coordinators and, and it, there's a certain amount of staffing that's involved with placing those cases, recruiting the attorneys, keeping them involved, keeping them up to date, you know, making those connections. Um, there, there really is no substitute we found for uh, having, having uh, uh, a person, whether it be the, the legal services organization, some, in some cases, uh, that can be leadership also from um, a judge or, you know, a senior partner in a, in a private law firm. Um, you know, we, you need to identify those people that can, can keep bringing people back. Um, the other thing we've found, too, is you need to make the opportunities as convenient as possible uh, for the pro bono attorneys. You know, one of the things we're finding as a result of the pandemic is attorneys are becoming more comfortable on using technology, on using remote technology, um, you know, attending hearings virtually. Those, that might actually help expand some of the opportunities. Um, you know, if, if a pro bono attorney can uh, log on remotely to a hearing and have a discrete period of time uh, and not have to go to the courthouse and wait all day to be called for that case, uh, that's gonna, you know, help improve and, um, you know, get more volunteers and and uh, expand the services provided. One of the things that I found interesting watching the legal community and the courts react to the pandemic is that we've seen courts in a lot of states rapidly adopt things like video conferencing and other technologies to make sure that the wheels of justice can keep turning. But at the same time, we see government agencies reeling from budget shortfalls and law firms cutting salaries and tightening their belts as the economy has contracted. And I kind of see these as opposite sides of the same coin in regards to the legal communities uh, dealing with the pandemic. And uh, Dorna, I'm curious, um, what are you finding in your work? Is this a time when you're experiencing high demand for a product like yours, or are you finding potential partners tepid to expand their work in a new way? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are lots of law firms specifically who have scaled back on their summer associate programs or shortened them 
or may just not have enough work for further summer associates to do. And what we're seeing is they have bright prospects about the future and they want to keep those attorneys trained. And so it's actually been a really great opportunity for some of those law firms to give a helping hand through their, through their associates and summer associates to work on pro bono cases um, or also to work hand in hand with legal aid organizations to build out some of the tech tools that they may not have, may not have had um, the time and, and uh, bandwidth to, to, to work on before. Um, we have been really pushing that in terms of just building relationships between law firms who have those excess resources or want to have additional training and legal aid organizations who, who need to be connected with them. Now, one of the things that was brought up earlier in the call that I'm interested in maybe digging a little bit more, and, and Jane, I think this, correct me if I wrote down the stats wrong, was that about only 20% of low-income Americans actually seek out legal help for the legal problem they're having. And it seems like there's an identification problem here. People don't know that the problem they're having is a legal problem. So I'm curious if, if, and I leave this open to any of you, if there are aspects of the programs that you're doing that are helping people know that they should be clients for pro bono legal services. Because it seems like even though there is more demand than supply at the moment, like that demand could be significantly larger than it even is now. And I'm curious how, how you are considering tackling that. Kristen, I see you nodding, so maybe I'll throw it to you first. Yeah, well, you know, it, it just reminds me of a few different initiatives I've been reading about recently. So, um, so as we've all heard, you know, Utah and other states are now thinking about a lot of regulatory reform that would make it easier for, for example, folks who are not lawyers to get involved with um, legal assistance. And one project that I worked on with the Chicago Bar Foundation, Chicago Bar Association's task force um, was identifying the role for community justice navigator as one example of someone who would be um, you know, already a local trusted community member, maybe someone who works in a school or in a religious institution, um, who people can go to to talk about some of their issues. And as we alluded to in the beginning, you know, folks don't know that they're necessarily legal problems. They just have a problem and they can go to this person, you know, talk through them and then get a trusted referral um, to either a legal services organization or online resources, self-guided interviews that can help address these issues or at least direct them to, to folks who can assist. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for regulatory reform to help folks identify problems um, legal problems where they can seek help. And then I think there's also an opportunity for you know, the majority of folks who get turned away from legal services organizations because of capacity issues to turn to online resources that are vetted, um, that are automated to help with some of these questions to resolve on their own or thinking about some of the new you know, pro se litigant tools that are out there, thinking about companies like Courtroom 5 and People Clerk who are addressing um, folks needs who are going to court on their own, um, just helping them understand and navigate the system in a more, um, I guess, thorough way and, and better educated way would be meaningfully better than um, no resources at all. So those are the things that have been top of mind for me recently. Yeah, the, the legal navigators um, is a, is a, is a uh, uh, 
great point. Um, one of the things that's kind of similar to that we're seeing uh, and growing uh, is medical legal partnerships. Um, so a legal aid organization will partner with say a children's hospital in their community um, and actually have a attorney in the offices. They'll go in and train some of the uh, medical providers to help issue spot that something might be a underlying legal issue um, or have a legal solution. Say for instance, if a if a child is coming in and, and has uh, asthma problems, there might be mold issues in their, um, in their home. Uh, so they could refer them to the attorney to kind of dig in and, and uh, recognize that there might be a legal solution uh, to those issues. Um, the other thing in terms of some, some technology uh, um, solutions to address this, uh, we've been working with a Stanford Legal Design Lab on a project to develop a legal schema. Um, it's kind of technical, but essentially what it is, is, is testing that if you're tagging the trusted uh, legal aid and um, legal statewide websites that have been built up across the country with appropriate uh, tags uh, to allow when people are using more natural language to do searches on Google, that they, those results will rise up in their Google results and they can go to the websites. Uh, some of those websites now might be building chatbots um, to help kind of do a question and answer. A lot of them have for many years have had some live chat navigators so that when people visit the sites, uh, they have volunteers, sometimes it's law students, um, sometimes it's even um, just legal navigators that are working on this chatbot in order to help the person identify what their need might be and point them to the right resources uh, to get help. And I just want to echo what Jane said about medical legal partnerships, because that's something that we've seen a lot as well. Um, I think the, the issue of people who don't know that they have a legal problem is a really difficult one to tackle because you don't really know where to find them. Um, but there are these other locations that may not be legal aid organizations or, or legal offices where you can find them. So we work with a lot of domestic violence shelters. And so similar to the, to the asthma, asthma issues, um, when someone goes into a hospital or a doctor, they can have referral programs that, that can refer them to the local legal aid or, or as well. So, so knowing whether or not someone has a legal problem is one part of the access puzzle. The other part, especially now, as libraries and other community hubs are closed, is when everything's virtual, how do people get online when they might not have reliable internet or a modern technical device? So Jane, I was curious to how you think about this, and maybe and then we can open this up to, to everybody else, but there's this digital divide in this country, broadband internet misses something like 40 million people. Uh, across the U.S., primarily in rural communities. So how does LSC think about this issue? Yeah, this is something I've been tracking for many years. Um, and you're right on with it. The, it's, it's a little over 40 million Americans don't even have access to broadband, even if they wanted it or could afford it. Um, and we're finding, you know, more and more uh, people are what we call smartphone reliant. Uh, so they only go online using their smartphones. And of course, that obviously skews uh, higher to low-income people, um, to people of color. 
Um, and, you know, also younger people now um, are, are really foregoing broadband. Um, you know, so, you know, with, you have partnerships and with libraries being closed, that's, a, um, you know, in the pandemic, that's, that's been a big issue with courts moving to online hearings. Um, that's been an issue. You know, we've tried a number of different projects. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, Montana is a great example. They have, um, you know, it's, it's it, I think it takes 11 hours to drive across the state of Montana. It's equivalent to driving from DC to Chicago. And I think they have 50, about 15 attorneys to cover that entire area. So they've had to try and find ways to use technology to kind of, um, bridge this gap, uh, you know, they can partner with a social service agency and, and help people, you know, go there to, to get online and, and access uh, those tools. But, but one of the things we have to remember is sometimes the lowest tech uh, can be the best tech in these cases. You know, the telephone is still a really good tool to reach people. Um, text messaging um, is is also maybe even a better tool these days to, to reach people. Um, we've seen a lot of in, in pro bono programs where they get a volunteer attorney to just um, have an appointment for 30 minutes of advice on a telephone call. Uh, you know, and often sometimes once that relationship has started, the pro bono attorney will then, you know, send a letter or do a little bit of limited service with the client. Um, so, you know, you have to remember, uh, sometimes low tech can also be the best tech too in, in instances. Kristen and Dorna, same question to you, especially for two people that founded uh, technology companies. Um, how do you think about the digital divide when it comes to uh, this access to justice gap? Yeah, I think that, you know, smartphone technology, as Jane said, is incredibly important. Um, 80% of people in the US have access to a smartphone and that number is, is growing every year. And so having tools where even if they don't have broadband internet, can go, they can go on their phone and access that or go a long way. Um, a lot of, we've seen a lot of people experimenting more with, with text message like guided workflows where you may answer a series of questions that guide you to the right pro bono attorney and and help you get access that way um and then you know traditional form a lot of these a lot of courts still require you to be filing things by mail especially in more rural areas and so having more people on video conferencing tools um, or some kind of dial-in for the video conferencing tool can, can be really, really helpful in, in getting them access as well. And I think, you know, in, in the absence of technology, pro bono legal assistance and just legal assistance in general really comes down to um, relationships and people helping others to navigate our judicial system. And so, it will help us, especially in the areas that Jane mentioned, where there are you know, very few lawyers to serve a, a large swath of a state or a community. Um, it will help to pinpoint, you know, who are the other folks that people rely on in this community for information and direction and guidance? And how do we equip them with the tools and the education that's necessary to help folks identify their issue and then address it um, properly? So really making sure that we're you know, figuring out where these folks are going for their information and um, providing them with the tools that they need to help them inform others. 
You know, on, on a good day in a good economy, the work that you three do is hard. Um, and uh, the days lately have not been so great. Uh, and the economy, of course, is not doing well either. I think in, it's a period of time where a lot of people find it easy to be pessimistic about the world that we all inhabit. Um, but I'm curious to what keeps you three going. Like, what are you optimistic about? And uh, Jane, we can start with you. I think I said this earlier, but I think that the, you know, the pandemic has really the, the, the good side of it. Um, and what I'm optimistic about is that things that we've been pushing for for many years and have seen very slow adoption of, you know, has, has multiplied in so many ways, um, you know, how people are making connections and using technology and um, you know, courts are changing some of their systems and some of their processes and making it easier. And I don't think that we're gonna go back to the way it was before the pandemic. Um, and that makes me optimistic that um, I think people have seen that some of these uh, new ways of doing things can actually work uh, and, and will be continued uh, to be adopted and um, maybe uh, brought more into just the regular processes of the way that courts work and the way that uh, people can obtain access to justice. Kristen, what keeps you going? So you know, in the past few months, we have seen just a huge surge in interest and engagement in pro bono work, um, really more than in the last few years. Um, I almost want to say combined um, because people are so eager to plug into their communities and find out, figure out a way to help. So I've been so encouraged by that. And, you know, the number of folks who are doing pro bono for the first time, who are getting trained, who are studying outside of their comfort zone and really um, being able to make an impact is incredibly encouraging. And hopefully as um, all this COVID, um, all these COVID consequences um, continue on, we'll continue to see that type of engagement. And Dorna, what are you optimistic about at this time? Yeah, I think that the legal aid community has always sort of been at the forefront of pushing what technology can do. Every single year when I go to, to the LSC TIG conference, there are conversations being had there that I think feel like they're very much uh, on, the, on the edge of what's being had within the rest of the legal community. And part of that is because it's, it's driven by necessity. Um, we, we can't live in the way that the regular for-profit uh, legal world lives because we have problems to solve in the, in the immediate now. Um, and I think COVID has only really exacerbated that and it's something that is ever-present. Every single one of us has, has been affected by COVID in some way or another, and obviously many much worse than others, um, but it it has also created a sort of empathy for the problems that, that are, are going on. And I think that that has partially been, in my conversations with pro bono lawyers, the reason that they're getting involved in, in higher numbers. Um, so hopefully it's gonna be a, a tipping point for both technology and for, for pro bono legal assistance. Well, I like that as a, a note to end on. I'd like to thank Jane, Kristen, and Dorna for being with us on Talk Justice today. For links to what we discussed, please check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Talk Justice is produced by Kristen Reardon, with support by Katherine Fanland, Shanika Richardson, and Marta Cruz. Our fearless leader is Carl Rauscher. I'm Jason Taché, and thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice. 